What's this? Tape measure. It's, um, it's pretty small. But um, have you ever been in, in a place where you need a tape measure? And, and you can't find one. <laughs> right? And you just want to measure something small. Um, but they're really handy. And this has happened to me several times. So finally I went out and just bought this cheap <laughs> tape measure, you know, to keep around. And it's become very handy. Um, it's very useful. I know uh, for the parents that have children here, they'll use a tape measure and they'll put it up on the wall. For what purpose? To see how they grow, right? And what's the purpose of that? So you, you can see progress, right? Hey, I'm really growing. And of course, to some parents' surprise, um, like summertime, you, you, they must be giving them weed and feed or something. All of a sudden, they're like this, you know? They grow two or three inches, they grow out of their clothes, and you wonder, what's happened here? And their pants are up here like this, you know, right? Um, but uh, tape measure is a good device. Now, if I were to use it here, let's see how good Don was. And did you install this, Don? Wow, spot on, same measurements, top and bottom. I'm impressed. But, um, you know, again, a, a, measure, a tape measure is a very useful tool. It gets things right. I know in cabinet making, Don can relate to this. How important is this in cabinet making? It's essential. Without this, you can have all kinds of mistakes. Uh, you could walk into a house and look at your cabinets and wonder, who in the world built these? And, or who installed these cabinets? I mean, the cabinets could look beautiful, but they could be cattywampus out of tilt, the doors on, aren't right, on right. But when you have a tape measure, you can make sure everything is in right perspective, right? A tape measure. And I was thinking about this as uh, we're entering our final message on Titus. Well, we've had, this is our seventh message on Titus. Um, and I was struck... Uh, about the book of Titus and how practical this book is. It reminded me of a time when seven of us brothers got together over 30 years ago and the Lord laid on our heart to plant a church. And I was reminded in the book of Titus how important it is to have the guidelines that were laid out for Titus while he ministered in the island of Crete. And... Uh, the guidelines are so practical. You know, we got together. We had a, a gentleman and you know, one of seven of us. His name was Bill McDonald. And I know a lot of you know Bill. He was such a, a blessing to all of us here. And I thought a lot about Bill this week as I was putting this message together. And the impact that this brother had in me. I really saw Bill as the Paul who... Uh, wrote to Titus, a very personal letter. And this letter to Titus is a very personal letter. It's got all kinds of practical things in it. And in those uh, days when we first started church planning, I've never been involved with church planning. Uh, I know Don, were you involved with church planning at all? This is the first time. It was the first time for most of us. So we're wondering, okay, yeah, the Lord laid it on our heart, but what do we do? <laughs> So then we got started, and then we got people like Beth and Gary come out, and, and, uh, and we had Matt and, and uh, the Costanzos, and it started growing. And 
You know, then we, had to, we didn't have leaders established yet. You know, there was no designated elders. There was no deacons. We were just a bunch of happy Christians who loved the Lord, who wanted to meet together and assemble together to grow in the Lord. And uh, then Bill, you know, he, he worked with us and said, well, brothers, it's time to have deacons and elders. And so he helped us through that transition as to, okay, well, how do we go do that? We've never done this before. Well, that's kind of like it was with Titus. Here's Titus. He's on this island. He gets a letter from, from Paul, and Paul gives him the guidelines as to how to establish leaders. And we saw that in chapter 1, didn't we? You know, establishing leaders, how important it is to set up leaders and elders in the local assembly. And there was some specific guidelines in there on how to do that. It was no mystery. It's all way well laid out. You know, if, if um, Titus was asked to write a uh, job description for elder or deacon, he had it. Paul sent it to him. He said, here it is. It's all laid out. So when Titus went to his HR manager, it wasn't a hard thing to go out and try to find somebody. Right? He had all the details he needed. That was in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we saw a lot about the roles and responsibility of older women, younger women, older men, younger men. What is their roles and responsibility in the church? We saw that... Um, what are the things that were to be spoken of in the church for proper doctrine and for living Christ-like lives? We went through that in chapter 2. And now we're in 3. We had a message in chapter 3 a few weeks ago. And we're going to continue and wrap up in chapter 3 today where Paul continues now his exhortation to Titus concerning the ministry of the local churches. And if you've got a pencil, you have your Bibles open... Don't be afraid to write in your Bible. Let's break this chapter up into three sections. Okay? Section 1, verses 1 through 7. We looked at this already, and it focused on the believers and how to live with ungodly people. And one of the key verses there was for, to be ready for every good work. To be ready. And then the next section is verses 8 through 11. And this is what we're going to get into today as well, something new for us. It now focuses on false teachers. And there's another word that's not used too much today. Have you ever heard of the word heretic? False teacher, heretic is the same type of person. We're going to get into a little details about that and how um, Christians are to respond to both a false teacher and a heretic in the church. Now, it may seem unusual for you in this assembly to think, well, have we ever had any false teachers here? And Matt, we, have we had false teachers come into our midst? Yeah, they didn't stay long. Yeah, that's the key. And the reason for that is because of sound doctrine. It's so important to have sound doctrine, not only for the leadership, the elders and the deacons, but also the saints. So you don't get led astray by something that's false. Uh, for instance, if somebody came in 
and uh, they said that uh, I need to be baptized to be saved. How would you respond to that? Well, I think you would have a, an interesting response. You'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're adding work to salvation, right? But I'll tell you, there's people out there that can, you, they'll talk Christianity with you. You can sit down with them. Everything sounds good. Jake and I talked about this a few months ago where somebody sounds so close to the truth, all right? So close to the truth, you had to get this out. And what would we use to expose them? The Word of God, right? So you line up to their teaching to what the Word of God says and expose them. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in verses 8 through 11. Really deals with dealing with false teachers and heretics. Now, verses 12 through 15 Paul now gives his final instructions to Titus. And it's really interesting is you look at this. I mentioned this to Don the other day as I kept reading this over and over again. I thought, what is the purpose of this? You know, as you read scriptures, you see something in there and you read it and you wonder, what's the writer talking about? Why is this here? There's a reason for it. And one of the things that really impacted me about these particular verses was, I'll tell you later, you have to sit and wait and hear the rest of it, okay? So in 12 and 15, we see final instructions. He says there's reinforcements coming to replace you, Titus, and to build up the church here in Crete. And also, he talks a lot about maintaining good works to meet the needs of the saints. So those are three sections that we're going to cover very quickly. Now, let's read through Titus 1 through 15. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Underline that in your Bible. Ready for every good work. So, as you read the Word of God, do you just want to gloss things over as you read through it? No, you want it to sit you want it to come into your mind. You want to meditate on it. You want to bring it up over and over. What does this mean to me? How do I live this out in my life? Be ready for every good work. And in order to be ready for every good work, you have to have the right tool, right? What happens if you don't have the right tool? This building will look pretty cattywampus. So we want to get, make sure our thinking is correct. We have sound doctrine. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility, all humility to all what? Men, no exceptions. And that's a pretty hard task to do today, isn't it? To show humility to all men, especially those that don't deserve to be humble before. We'll talk a little bit about that later. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of our God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, 
for which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope that is in eternal life. And now let's go to sections 8 through 11, responding to false teachers. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men, but avoid foolish disputes genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. And when I send Artemis to you, Articacus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenius the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be with you, and be with you all. Amen. Well, to go back to verses 1 through 3, how to live with the ungodly people. The civil rulers, we already talked about that. We'll just do a quick review here. Well, we, we learned that Christians need to be good citizens. We need to be an example. We have Christ in us. When people see us, they should see Christ. They should see his example through us. Okay? And let's see if we've got this working here. And make sure we got. There we go. Okay. So here, how to live. Christians ought to be good Christians or citizens. And remember this our true citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Yeah, it's not here on this earth. That's something that we often forget about. We get so caught up in things that we forget that we're just here temporarily. We're pilgrims here. We're going to move on from this world, and we're going to move on to heaven. That is where we belong.
But while we're here on earth, we ought to apply our Christian faith in practical daily life. The church is not to get involved in party politics, which is so easy to get involved with this year, (laughs) with the politics that are going on right now. It's so easy to get involved with that. But, you know, while we're here, we ought to apply our Christian faith in a practical daily life. And the church is not to get involved in party politics. It's something we just don't do. Um, I think many of you have been to different churches. I remember my early days and young people. That was most of the messages that I would hear on a Sunday morning. It was all about politics. But that isn't what you're going to hear from, from this pulpit. It's not about party politics. The church is not to get involved in the party politics. However, Christian people should seek and apply Christian principles to the affairs of the city and the nation. That's our responsibility. As we see in Romans 13, 1 through 8, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by who? Yeah, they're appointed by God. Is that, is that new message for you? That those that are over you are appointed by God? You say, well, wait a minute, how can that happen? They're not Christians. Well, God appointed them. How do we know? Because it says so. God puts them in position, no matter what their background Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Here's a promise from God. Praise from the same. For... He is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for your conscience sake. For your own conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to do this very thing. Render, therefore, all their due on April 15th. Oh, you don't see that there, do you? (laughs) Okay. So we know April 15th is marching forward, isn't it? It's coming. Why? We're going to pay taxes by that date. The Lord says... Render, therefore, all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe no one except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Might be getting a good signal here. There we go.
Something's not working here. Uh, okay, there we go. All right. Even if the believer cannot honor the personal conduct of a ruler, he must honor the office. Must honor the office. And the laws of the land. However, if the laws contradict the word, the Christian's first allegiance is to God. Just to remember that. First allegiance is to God. We see in Acts 4.19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Where there is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than, than to God, you judge. Acts 5.29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, You ought to obey God rather than what? Men. So we see that in verse 1, ready for every good work. Suggests that Christians ought to support that which is good in the program of our government. That's what we are to do. In Titus 3.1, it says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work work. Interesting. Ready. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready for every good work. You know, many of the reforms that we've had in our country and around the world have been a direct result of Christian men who love the Lord and use biblical principles. What was our country founded on? Yeah. Godly principles. Our Constitution was based upon godly principles. You wouldn't know that today to hear some of the politicians speak, which is unfortunate. But just think, all the great men of the past, Christians in the past, held to Christian principles. And what would the lives of the unsaved be if they held to the Christian principles that are laid out in Scripture? Would our world be a lot different? Yeah, I think so. Instead of taking down the Ten Commandments from all public uh, places, even if you look at those ten things that are listed there, are they not good? <laughs> but yet, the darkness of man wants to remove. So we see that we're not to be mere spectators here in our country. But when it's possible for us, we are to do good. You know, it's said in the Word of God that we're the salt of the earth, the light to the world. Now, if you think of salt being the salt of the earth, what is salt good for? Think about salt. It's a wonderful thing, salt. It preserves you know, a lot of the foods you eat has salt in it. Some of my favorite foods has a lot of salt in it. I should be eating is beef jerky. <laughs> I love it. It's got a lot of salt in it, but it preserves. But salt also has another impact, too. If you have a wound, you put salt on it. Yeah, I just think of my dentist. You know, I remember getting my teeth pulled a long time ago, but uh, in the front, because I had braces, and they pulled them out and First thing I had me do is gargle with salt. 
And doesn't, for those who have done it, doesn't it just bring a soothing feeling to your mouth to gargle with salt? Because it brings healing. It heals. It has a healing effect. So we are like the salt of the earth. It preserves. It brings healing. And we're a light to the world. We shared that this morning at the breaking of bread. That Jesus shone into our hearts and revealed the gospel message. And he put the gospel message into earthen vessels. That the light of the world shone in our hearts so that we might go out and share the gospel. So when we go out, we should involve ourselves in good causes, provided that we don't compromise our convictions or hinder the work of the Lord. But sadly to say, some Christians think they will accomplish their purpose, purposes by arguments. And in verse 2, Paul warns against spreading lies with evil intent and starting fights. That the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You ever seen believers like this? <clears throat> Doesn't bring the righteousness of God. For in James 1, it says, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Is this, have you been like this? Any time in your Christian walk? Well, I know I have. But to see these pictures, it brings about a sense of humility and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Gentleness and meekness can be stronger than political power. Believers depend on different weapons for our fight. Can you think of weapons in the fight, in the spiritual fight today? We have weapons available to us to fight the battle against sin around us. In 2 Corinthians 10, 1-6, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence... Am lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold toward you. But I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down what? Strongholds. Wow. That's amazing. You know, you might get, hear something that's going on in the world today and you wonder, we ever going to get through this? But God has a way of pulling things down. When the saints gather together and pray and get involved, they can bring down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity 
to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The believer, after he's done all he can, knows how to trust God to fight his battles. Do you believe that? Do you trust God to fight your battles? Yeah, I think, I think of uh, my brother Don here. And Don, I don't want to embarrass you, but you know, I think of all the, the years I've known Don and some of the unusual fiery darts that have come his way in his life. Man, he stays strong. And Don, I see Christ in you because you know how to fight the fight. It's not easy. As we saw in the scriptures this morning, with Paul, his life wasn't easy. It was tough. It was difficult. But he wasn't downtrodden, was he? He pressed on to the glory that it's in Christ always. In Christ, you can fight anything that comes your way. You know why I believe that? Because it says so. You can do anything in Christ. Learn to trust God to fight your battles. You don't have to do it. Do all you can beforehand that you can do, but then trust in God to see you through it. And he'll carry you along. I've seen that done in your life over and over and over again. You've been a wonderful testimony to me, Don. Keep up the battle. In Romans 12, 17 through 21. Repay no one, no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men, not just some, but all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceable with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, it really disheartens me when I hear Christians trying to take vengeance themselves. You know, it really disheartens me because God forbids it. God says, this is my job, not your job. <laughs> and isn't it a lot easier if it's his job and not your job? Because when God does it, is he going to do it the right way? You can count on it. You do it, you're going to fail miserably. Just keep that in mind. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Well, that's a verse I remember the first month I was saved. You will heap coals upon their head. 
kind of hard to give water to your enemy, isn't it? If your enemy is thirsting, you're going to go out of your way and say, enemy, here's some water for you to quench your thirst. Is that an easy thing to do? But in Christ, because if you give that cup of water to even your enemy, you do so in the name of what? Jesus. He's the one that's honored. Not you. Jesus is honored. And you never know what the result is going to be many years later by doing that. You know, Matt, it's interesting you brought up that guy at Merritt, Lake Merritt, yeah, Boathouse. You know, there's, there's people that I've seen in my life that come back to me and they come back and say, you know, you shared this with me. Man, it really got me thinking. But it's been many years before. And they weren't my friends, by the way. But they came back and said, you know what? I want to talk to you because I see something different in your life that I want to have. Have you ever had that happen to you? That's because you have Christ living in your life. And it says, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. It's kind of hard for us to do in this world today, isn't it? Especially all the stuff that comes at us, you know, TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, people, everything's coming at you. The senses are just getting, you know, tormented by all, a lot of misinformation. Well, meekness is not weakness, remember that. It's not a weakness to be meek. It's not a weakness to go up and say to somebody that you've offended and say, you know, I know if I have offended you and I ask for forgiveness, will you forgive me? And I think many of you have gone through that. And what's the general response from people that do that? They say, well, that's okay. We're okay. It's all right. And then you respond back, you say, well, will you forgive me? Well, it's okay. It was nothing. It's nothing. Well, will you forgive me? <laughs> you ever had that? They don't get it. I just want you to say you're forgiven. That's got to be some of, one of the hardest words for a person to say, you're forgiven. But if you get into that situation, don't let up. Ask for forgiveness. You know, you get that... Uh, the thing in your heart, you know, you're just churning over and over and over again because you've offended somebody and finally you say, you know, you've got to go talk to them and ask for forgiveness. Have you ever had that? But then when you finally ask for forgiveness and they forgive you, wow, do you have a clear conscience? It's like a new life. Well, meekness is not weakness. Rather, is the power under control. Jesus, remember, he was meek, yet he knew how to exercise his power. Do you have the same? In Matthew, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find what? Rest in your souls. You see this picture of a yoke. 
On one side of that yoke, for all believers, Jesus is on one side carrying the load. He's sharing the load, and you're on the other side. That's the way Jesus is with us. Did he have to do that? No. But he's willing, and he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Wow. God of heaven and earth says he wants to yoke with you. Isn't that great? He wants to be with you wherever you go. And in verses 3 through 7, Paul reminded Titus that all believers' motive for honest living should be, it's by the grace of God. And the emphasis of this letter is that God's grace not only saves us, but also controls us in our daily lives and makes us more like Christ. And then he reminds us, remember your old life. Remember your old life before you were saved, Paul says. This will help you understand those that are around you who are unsaved, not unsaved because you were once like them, right? You can relate to them. Also that we have been saved by God's kindness and his love. You know, God hates the sins listed in verse 3, but he loves the sinners. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinners. Through Christ's death on the cross, God has been reconciled to the world and thus able to save all who will come to him by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all new things have come. And now all things are of God, who has reconciled us, reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us now the ministry of reconciliation. You know, it's God's gracious and giving attitude toward undeserving sinners. This news of God's love appeared in Christ, his person, his work, his teaching, and most of all, his death and resurrection. And Paul makes it clear that our salvation is not by works, not by works, although its results is in good works. We see in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, there's not going to be anyone in heaven that's going to be boasting. Hey, how did you get here? Hey, Angelo, how did you get to heaven? Luke, how did you get to heaven? Madeline, how did you get here? <laughs> it's not going to be that way. Our works didn't get us there, but it's through Christ, what he did for us on the cross. The washing has nothing to do, we see here in verse 5, with baptism. The word 
comes from a word that means labor that was referred to in the Old Testament for washing and the, and the, uh, at the temple. He used the same word in Ephesians 5.26 that he might sanctify, setting apart, and cleanse her from the washing of water by what? The word. It's by the word. Where the washing is accomplished by the word. And throughout the Bible we see that water for washing is likened to the word of God. Here's some verses that shows that. In John 15, 3. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. In Psalm 119. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. In Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water, by the word. In other words, it describes two agents of our new birth. The regeneration, the word of God and the spirit of God. We see this in John 3.5. Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water... And the Spirit, he cannot, what? Enter the kingdom of God. That's a fact. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. In James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth from the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know, the Spirit has been poured out upon all believers. Every believer that's sitting in this room, the Spirit of God has been poured upon you. Do you have just a piece of the Spirit of God? No. You've got the, all the Spirit of God. The Spirit is in all believers. Poured out on you once and for all the moment you believe on who he is. He pours the Spirit out on you. The believer is then justified by grace and is now an heir of God. Can you imagine that? Now you're an heir of God. Amazing. What a blessed and awesome position we all have in Christ. I'm thinking of breaking the bread. Man, we are so fortunate that God saved us. We are so fortunate that he's taken us in and saved those who trusted in him and cleansed us and washed us and regenerated us. We became a new creature. We became an heir of his. Man, how wonderful that is. What's fantastic news. And you have a place in heaven. It's a promise from God. What a wonderful position we have in Christ. A wonderful salvation ought to motivate us to being better citizens. What purpose is that for? So that the unsaved around us might see Christ in us and want to know him. It should be our motivation. That the unsaved might know him like we got to know him. Now we're going to get toward the end here. Problem of false teachers. Well, in heretic... We look at the word heretic, it means someone who has a self-will, 
is a person who holds unconventional doctrinal biblical beliefs. And it's interesting, if you look at the root word, it comes from a word meaning to choose. And I found this really interesting when I looked this up. It comes from a root word to choose. And it suggests a person who causes divisions in the church forces people to choose. You know, Don, we've seen that, haven't we? <laughs> Churches are split because people are forced to choose over the silliest things. This suggests a person who causes division in the church forces people to choose. Are you for me or are you for the leaders? Well, Galatians 5.20 talks about that. Sorcery, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies. You know what these are? These are of the flesh. It's of the flesh. And this was very prevalent in the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Also in Crete, they were the troublemakers in Crete. That's why this was addressed to Titus from Paul. They loved to argue about their words. They loved to argue about genealogies and suggest that they wanted to bring Judaism back in to the message of the gospel and just tried to build novel ideas and doctrines and Old Testament ideas concerning the gospel. But we see here such unprofitable and empty discussions are to be avoided. They, the true believers, will never be convinced or never convince the enemy and only divide the church. You cannot convince somebody that holds a false teaching. You have people come to your door on Sunday or on Saturday mornings. Have you ever convinced them that they're teaching something that's false? I haven't yet. And it's been many years because I love to show them the word of God and let them go their way. Well, how was Titus to handle this, these problem people? Well, one thing, he had to avoid arguing with them. Don't argue with them. Don't argue with somebody that holds to a false teaching. Now, if you're strong in the word, you can show them what the word of God is. But don't argue. Then if they persist, persist in causing strife, even after two admonitions, they were to be dismissed from fellowship. So if there's somebody here that has an unbiblical, undoctrinal position, they need to be admonished, and it needs to be brought to their attention, and they're to be put out. Church members who cause divisions and then take their membership to other church should be allowed to go. Let them go fellowship with people that believe the way they do. That's why we have a doctrinal statement that when you give it to someone, they know exactly what we believe here. And if they adhere to some other belief, 
then we encourage them without arguing, without getting into you know, um, any bad feelings. Please go fellowship with someone that believes the way you do. You'll be much more happy because you will not be happy here. Right, Matt? We've done that many times. Now, the final message, the final, let's see, I lost my place here, I'm losing time here, so we'll go, now as we look here at the end here, at this final message, you know, Paul closes his brief letter with a final instruction now, and um, the instructions were for information about the travels of the associates uh, that were working with him and the Lord's work. And he informs Titus that he's sending reinforcements there to help, to assist him in a difficult ministry in Crete. And um, either Artemis or Tychicus would replace him so that they might join Paul in the Copolis. But meanwhile, this is interesting too as you look at this. Meanwhile, Titus was to stay on the job until someone arrived to continue the work. That kind of hit me. That God isn't someone that's going to take a, a, a striving assembly that's working and disrupt that assembly by removing a key leader without having a replacement first. An amazing thought came to me over this when I saw this. It's well to keep in mind that God doesn't destroy one ministry to build another. When he moves a servant, he has a replacement already to step in. If no replacements are ready, it might be an indication this is not the time for someone to move on. So we see now in verse 14 that it was Paul's reminder that the local Christians ought to assist Titus in his work in the ministry of helping others on the way. You know, the elder, the pastor, and the people should share in all this ministry. It's not the work of one man. It's not the work of one person. It's the work of the whole to share in this ministry, to bring hospitality, to be an encouragement, to be fruitful in every good work. And this, that's what should describe every Christian in this assembly, outside of the assembly. Every Christian should describe someone as being fruitful in every good work. It says here in Colossians that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we should be doing. Fruitful. See these grapes? I look at those grapes. I've been in the vineyards uh, different times of the year. Uh, does that look like a pretty fruitful vine there? Looks pretty fruitful, doesn't it? That's the way God wants us, to be fruitful in our lives in all seasons. And in verse 15, Paul closes his letter to Titus with his apostolic greeting, linking love with faith, 
He says, grace be to you all, which marks the letter that this is from Paul. I see this too in other uh, verses as well in the, in the scriptures from Paul's writing. You know it's from him. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. You know it's from him. It's from Paul. A personal letter wasn't from some other person. It's from Paul. And he finishes it out in Titus in the same manner. So in closing, believers maintain good works. That was a theme throughout this chapter. Maintain good works. Be ready for good works. Acts 20.35, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than what? Receive. And in Ephesians 4.28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 For remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you who preach to you the gospel of God. Second Thessalonians 3.8 Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toiled night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So saints, be encouraged, be motivated, maintain good works, meeting the urgent needs of the saints and the believers, the unsaved, and be fruitful in every good work. Be fruitful in every good work. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we again thank you for this letter from Paul and how practical it is. We see how you worked in Titus' life. We see how you worked in the assembly there in Crete. You gave clear instructions on its order. You gave clear instructions on doctrine. And you gave clear instructions as to how we should believe and how we should live in Christ and that we might be encouraged, be motivated to maintain good works in our lives. And may that be something of this assembly, Lord, that we would continue to maintain those good works and to be fruitful and to see people one for Christ because people see Christ in us. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, time, we'll skip the, the song. I went over here, but I wanted to finish out this chapter today. There's been seven messages. I didn't want to go to an eighth. But uh, thank you for staying over and uh, hope you're encouraged by this. But be motivated and uh, let Christ work in you and be fruitful and multiply. Praise the Lord.